If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the fourth of our September 2011 editions. Coming up, we have... The ambition in that man's face with the rough collar around his his neck is, is quite something. You see somebody whose hand is on the globe... That was John McAleer on the foundation of the East India Company. The spirit he showed in uh, apocryphally tangling with the polar bear would lead him on to many great things. That was Andrew Lambert on Horatio Nelson. Our first interview is with John McAleer, who is one of the curators for the brand new gallery at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. It's called Traders, the East India Company and Asia, and it opens on the 28th of September. You can find out more by visiting the National Maritime Museum website, which is www.nmm.ac.uk. McAleer is also author of a book, along with H.V. Bowen and Robert Blythe, called Monsoon Traders, the Maritime World of the East India Company, just published by the National Maritime Museum. You'll find an online gallery on the BBC History magazine website of some of the images that John mentions in the following interview. Go to historyextra.com slash traders to see that. We're talking about the East India Company, and the reason we're talking about that is because there's a new gallery opening up here at the National Maritime Museum, and you've been involved in setting it up. 
Indeed, yes. Five years of, um, of my life sort of directed at the history of the East India Company. So it's I'm not sure if that makes me an expert. Probably not when you have to hear what I have to say. But um, yeah, it's been a long time in, in gestation. But it's, it's an interesting story. It's one absolutely at the heart of Britain's maritime history. It's something that perhaps we don't think of when we think of the East India Company. You associate the East India Company with you know, the empire in India, with a land-based empire. And I suppose... The history of the East India Company has often been seen through that lens. So in, in hindsight, we look back and see the East India Company as sort of setting up, founding Britain's empire in, in India. And um, of course, it started as very much a maritime enterprise, something that merchants wanted to make money on, um, all based on ships and all sort of coming out of London. It wasn't called the East India Company when it was founded. It was given its royal charter on the 31st of December 1600 by Elizabeth I as the United Company of our, uh, Company of Merchants of London. So um, it's very much a London, City of London based enterprise um, and they're following in the footsteps of other London companies, so Levant Company, Muscovy Company, all of those companies that you sort of associate in your mind with the depths, dim depths of history. Um, the East India Company is one of those um, monopoly companies. Um, and it's trying to, I suppose, latch onto the coattails of the Dutch and the, and the Portuguese who have led the way into the Indian Ocean. Um, because uh, England, England was basically, and we're talking about England in, in the initial yep. process, yep. England was basically behind the curve here. The, the Dutch and the Portuguese had already sussed out that there was, there was money to be made over in the Indies. Yeah, I mean, the key thing that these East India companies do, the European East India companies of France and the Netherlands and Portugal and England, is they make um, sort of long-distance maritime trade in, in spices and other commodities um, profitable. So instead of having to go through the Mediterranean and go through the Venetian overland system, you essentially cut out the middlemen using ships. So the Portuguese are the first around the Cape of Good Hope to find this maritime route into the Indian Ocean. The Dutch are well organised. They follow, follow quickly on the Portuguese heels. And the English are very much behind, behind, behind the curve, as you say. Um, and what, what is the route that's taken by these ships? Well, depending on where they start, let's say for the argument in London for the England, English East India Company, out, out, of, out of the Thames, um, it sometimes take them longer to get from um, London around to Dartmouth than to get from Europe to Southern Africa. So the first East India Company commander, James Lancaster, takes his ships and takes him three months to get to Dartmouth. Um, very long time because you're, Why? well, wind patterns, they're becalmed at, um, you know, in the Thames and they run out of money before they leave England even. So, you know, the omens are not good for the first um, company uh, voyage to to the east. Um, but essentially the route is uh, from Europe, due south as it were, often calling at Tenerife or Madeira, so the islands off the coast of Africa, then um, frequently actually going, sort of following the, the, the winds. Um, so sometimes ships, East India Company ships, called at Rio de Janeiro. So the East India Company had an agent at Rio de Janeiro, which is not something you immediately associate with a company trading to Asia. So down through the Atlantic, around the Cape of Good Hope, and then up into the Indian Ocean, and using this sort of environmental system of the Indian Ocean, the monsoon system, a system of winds and tides and currents and sort of seasonal rains, that meant that ships needed to sort of pick their time to get into the, in, into the oceanic system and then sweep up to India or across the Indian Ocean to the spice islands of, of, of Indonesia. So that's the, the, the route there. Um, the first company voyage, James Lancaster's voyage, took 
over two years, I think, to, to, to get there. He was away from England for over 900 days in, in total between there, there and back. So it's a long voyage, um, lots of perils on the way, mainly maritime perils, um, but also, obviously also seasickness, um, scurvy, all, all sorts of things. So it's a really you know, small company when it starts out. Four ships, a um, couple of hundred men going on this voyage into the un- unknown, essentially, um, to grow to become such an important part of the, the national economy is quite quite something. Who who was the driving force behind that initial um, company when it started? Well, what's interesting about the company is it's sort of a um, it straddles the the world of the medieval guild and the modern multinational in that you can't really identify one particular person who says let's form an East India company. It's a group of about 50 or 60 merchants in the city of London. They see the profits that the Dutch are making. They understand that unless England gets to the source of these spices, they're going to be you know, paying very high prices to Amsterdam for their, for their spices. It was a group of city merchants who lobby the Queen to get a royal charter. Um, and it's really coming from the, the, the city, city of London. And a lot of these merchants are also involved in the Levant trade or the Muscovy trade. So it's essentially entrepreneurs who are seeing English overseas trade as the way, the way to make money. And spices... You don't actually need spices, so why was why why well, were we so interested in in getting them? Well, I suppose that's one of the great triumphs of the East India Company. If you think of the big commodities commodities that it traded, um, spices, pepper, um, textiles, and tea. Essentially, you could. Some people might disagree with this, but you can live without all of those. We had um, woolen cloth in, in England. We didn't need Indian muslin or silk. Um, we were drinking beer and water. And did we need tea? Um, the East India Company identifies a, a sort of desire in the, in the market and manages to exploit that. I mean, spices were used, obviously, for flavouring food, preserving food, and for different types of medicinal purposes. Um, but essentially, the company makes them more widely available. They bring back spices in greater quantities and sort of influence the, the, um, the demand in, in, in Europe. Sounds like uh, the, the, the initial voyage that you outlined, that taking such a long time to, to get to Devon for starters, mm. sounds like a, a fairly incompetent sort of uh, exercise. And, and we tried to, well, the English tried to give woolen cloths, heavy woolen cloths, to the people in the Indies as, as bartering device, which doesn't seem that clever an idea. Was it a fairly ignorant start? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, woolen cloth and spectacles, amongst other things, were the things they brought to in Indonesia, mm. um, and then were surprised that the Indonesians didn't want sort of heavy tweed um, in exchange for precious spices. I suppose, in some ways, it's. It, <laughs> I mean, Lancaster, who commanded the voyage, was actually rather well organised in that he gave his men lemon juice so prevent he didn't lose any men to scurvy. So in that respect, he was a good sailor, he knew his way, he knew how to look after his men on board. But in terms of dealing with um, very sophisticated trading systems and merchants in Asia, um, the Europeans really didn't know um, what, they were, what they were dealing with. They were very much... Um, ignorant of the trading conditions. Um, so they came with these textiles, sort of woolen cloth that they thought they could exchange. They came with gifts to, to, to barter, thinking, thinking they could swap these for spices. And they ended up having to spend um, species, essentially silver. Um, so despite their best efforts of swapping something that they didn't want for something they did want, um, lots of wool in England, not much spices, it seemed an obvious thing to swap, they ended up having to essentially um, raid the bank vaults and bring silver to 
Indonesia, Southeast Asia to China and, and to India because Asian traders are looking for silver in exchange for textiles or spices or, or tea. And I think this is one of the things in, in Britain, across the history of the East India Company, people in Britain are always wary about um, the value of the East India Company because they see it as bringing back things like pepper and tea that, as you've said, we don't actually need, and sending things like silver and money that we do need. And of course, in these days, um, before sort of Keynesian economics, before sort of 20th century economic theory, people think that there's a limited supply of money. So you're sending out your silver, your money to Asia, and you're getting back things that you put on your food or things that you drink. So um, there's a lot of I think worry in, in the country here about how useful it is to have a, a company um, sending all of this money out to, to Asia. So in those early days, in the early 17th century, was it not a great success then? Not really. I mean, the company sort of lurched from crisis to crisis. Um, it you know, almost goes out of business on a number of occasions. Um, it needs to be propped up by more sort of investment from individual shareholders. You get the king sort of having to, to, give, it, to give it money. And it's not terribly profitable um, you know it's running an average it's making um, sort of low level profits on individual voyages so it's not essentially terribly successful um, in, its, in its early days it takes it really until the 18th century until it starts to really get going until it moves into the highly profitable sort of textile trade with, with India Okay, so let's, let's leap on a bit obviously this is a very big story um, the, the, the company from, from those beginnings at the start of the 17th century, lasts for 250 years. 250 years, yeah. Um, so an extraordinarily long time for a company yeah. to be going. And, and it achieves enormous power and, yeah. and, and wealth. How on earth does that happen? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. Not what I probably could answer in the space of a podcast, but it, it is actually um, it's a very valid, valid one. And one of the, I suppose, explanations is how clever the company is at changing its sort of business model, as, as it were, in that it, it realises it has to diversify. Once people have had enough of pepper, it realises it has to go after the next, the next big thing. And its greatest commercial success is really tea. And it introduces tea to the British public. Um, it has the monopoly on bringing back tea from, from China and you get from in 1700 the company importing enough tea to make 4 million pots of tea to a century later in 1800 importing enough tea to brew 950 million pots of tea so it, is, you know, it has a monopoly on this key commodity that becomes a key commodity in British society so you can see where it's tax revenue it's sort of um, it's profitability the amount of money that it's taking in in revenue is sort of going up and up and up um, so from a commercial point of view, it's successful. It starts to become absolutely key to the British economy. The government is obviously making lots of money on excess duties on, on this tea. Um, so it becomes a company that's almost too big to fail. Um, we've heard that phrase before. And then on the other hand, as well as being a commercial success, it's also carving out an empire in India. Um, because once you've got control of trade, you want to make sure that you can defend that trade and to, to to put it quite bluntly, the company starts um, trying to defend its um, trading bases in India by acquiring more land in, in India. So it becomes this um, merchant company crossed with um, a sort of territorial empire in, in India. It's quite a, quite a bizarre story how it manages to grow to become one of these huge, um, it's an Asian power essentially, and you've got men 
um, and they're all men, of course, in Leadenhall Street controlling the, the company that's carved up an Indian empire for itself, while in a few miles away in Whitehall you've got the British government in charge of a, a different realm. Um, so it's a strange... It is quite extraordinary. Was that, was that ever a, a stated aim of the company, or was it just the actions of people like Clive going out and, 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 and doing that's, things that's unto good, themselves? That's, that's a good question. I think it, for the early directors of the company in the 1600s, in their little sort of smoke-filled boardroom, as it were, I think they would have looked at horror at the idea of acquiring a territorial empire. Think of all the responsibility and the administration that that brings with it. So, no, the, the original aims of the company were purely to maximise profit, like any corporation. Um, and it's, as you say, the actions of people like, like Clive that, that start... The company almost sort of falls into um, acquiring this this Indian Empire. It doesn't go down well in, in Britain. You've got lots of people um, questioning the company, you know, from people like Adam Smith saying this is a bad thing for a company to be in charge of uh, a government of a country, to people like Edmund Burke, who essentially puts the company on trial. I mean, his impeachment of Warren Hastings, that, you know, quite a famous um, episode in British parliamentary history is actually about Edmund Burke and others questioning whether the East India Company should be a territorial, a territorial power. So, it's, um, so it, was, it was regularly challenged then, from, even from its very beginnings, people weren't, weren't sure what this company was trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, and they questioned whether it was being successful in, in what it was trying to do, or whether it should indeed be in charge of a country. That was um, a, a big question that people were asking. How much power should a, a company, a trading company, actually actually have? And that led to the government in London actually trying to acquire more control over the company. If we've got a, a company doing things that affect other people, that affect the British population as well. We need to have more control over it. So you essentially get much more government regulation um, from the middle of the 18th century up until the demise of the company. And that's in some ways why the company and the government start inter- interweaving, become so entangled with, the, with each other. And is this, is this leading on to this, this idea that you mentioned about being too big to fail? Was it actually, I mean, obviously that's a contemporary phrase, but yeah. was it actually back in the day too big to fail? Well, I, th- I think so. if you look at the amount of revenue they're making on their tea imports, if you look at the amount of tax that that yields, it's somewhere in the region of 10% of government duties in any one year. So, um, you know, it is a big company that has a major impact on the tax revenue in Britain. It's a major company from the point of view of um, bringing back goods that people in the streets want, textiles, tea and and spices. And it's also a major strategic um, value for, for Britain. If the East India Company aren't in charge in India, if they don't have control over trade, well, the French will. And of course, that's sort of, this was bound up with stra- strategic concerns as well as economic concerns as well as political concerns. So it becomes this, this company, this sort of enterprise that needs to be supported and tightly regulated by, by government. And you get at sort of almost 10 year intervals, you get another act of parliament being instituted to bring the company even closer to the, even closer to the government. Um, so, as you said uh, at the start of the interview, we, we have this impression of it as being this land-based entity lording it over India. Um, so, but as you've outlined, actually there was a the big maritime element, which is why I assume you're setting up a, a new gallery here at the National Maritime Museum. What sort of stuff have you got in your holdings that's going to inform and educate us about about the story of the uh, of the company? Well, I suppose. 
What's interesting about the company is that it's a story of you know, London, it's a story of Britain, and it's a story of Britain's relationship with the wider world. So we've got objects, material, culture in the collection that illustrate all of those points. So we've got this type of things that you'd expect in, an, in a maritime museum. We've got ship models, so we've got um, so one of the oldest models of an East India Company ship in the country, the Somerset from the, 17, um, the early 18th century. We've got um, a range of oil paintings, we've got navigational instruments, we've got um, pieces of porcelain that the company um, would have brought back to, back to Britain. We've also got objects and material culture from the Indian Ocean world in which the company sort of found itself. So the Chinese junks, um, the sort of uh, Indian Ocean um, dows that would have been part of this trading world that the East India Company was very heavily involved in. So we're trying to tell that story of not just a company based in Leadenhall Street or a company leaving London for the East, but a company that's part of this Indian Indian Ocean world. And we've got some very pertinent local connections. We've got a 17th century painting showing company ships on um, the stocks at Deptford, a few miles down the road from where we're doing this this interview showing how the company um, traded in Asia, but also had a major um, impact on Britain's maritime economy. It's, um, you know, by virtue of its hiring ships and requiring shipbuilding, it's employing lots of people in Deptford, it's building docks and uh, you know, Blackwall, um, it's bringing back commodities like tea and spices and textiles that we've, that we've spoken about. So it really does have a, a resonance, I think, for Britain's story in the wider, in the wider world, which is one of the reasons that we're we're putting on this exhibition here. And you've got, as you say, you've got some really evocative oil paintings yeah. that in, in your collections that really um, bring to mind the sort of world that these ships were sailing into. Yeah. So, so, you know, some lovely paintings. Have you got any particular favourites of, of the ones that, that, that you're going to be putting yeah. on display? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because we've got two types. We've got the sort of portraits of ships and portraits of men, mm. and they tell two slightly different stories. Uh, I suppose I suppose the most evocative painting for, for me in some ways is that portrait of, of Lancaster. So I think it's the only surviving portrait of this man, James Lancaster, who's the f- commander of the first East India Company voyage. And to look him in the eye and see you know, the ambition in that man's face with the rough collar around his, his neck is, is quite something. You see somebody whose hand is on the globe, sort of almost lauding it over. This is a man who is set out with four small ships, a couple of hundred men, and he does change the course of history by virtue of having a successful voyage. Um, and then we've got the other portraits, the portraits of ships, and we've got some, some interesting comparisons. We've got um, a portrait of one of the early company ships, you know, a couple of hundred tons, um, and then further down the gallery you see this massive sort of canvas showing I think it's seven East India Company ships in the South China Seas and that contrasts for me between one or two ships, small numbers of men with these large big behemoths of ships really does give you the impression of how maritime trade and maritime connections really influenced, influenced British history. How does the story end? What happens to the East India Company? Well, the East India Company um, sort of goes up in flames, as it were, almost literally in 1858. It's abolished as a result of the Indian Mutiny. And this story, uh, as it all comes to grief, really, because of, I suppose it's a company that's overreached itself. It's overstepped the mark. It's a territorial power. It's a trading company that no longer trades. And what happens when you're not doing what you should be doing? Well, it all ends in, all ends in tears. And when the company is abolished in 1858. Um, the Indian Mutiny has just 
taking place in the subcontinent and Britain is at war with China for the second time over opium, essentially. So you've got um, the echoes of the company's trade and also the company's sort of mishandling of events playing out across Asia and playing out in Parliament as sort of this groundswell of opinion in Britain demands that the company is abolished and all of its territories and all of its sort of responsibilities are handed over to, to the Crown. So um, it's sort of a slightly ignominious end for, for the company, but I, I suppose throughout the gallery you see its impact and its continuing impact on, on people's lives today because I, mean, I think most visitors that will have come into the exhibition will have had a cup of tea at some point in, in their life. Um, so I think that's the, the sort of lesson from, from the company. It may no longer exist today, but its legacies are, are, still, are still with us. So its, its legacy is not just tea, though, is it? What, 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 how, would, how, would you, how would you sum up its legacy? Gosh, that's, a, that's, another, that's another big question. I suppose its legacy is in uh, two, two ways. One is the commodification of you know, different commodities being brought to Britain, introducing new tastes, new styles, um, but also in terms of um, Britain's place in the world and the, the way that that's changed over, over the years. You can see how Britain, you know, as a major imperial power in the 19th and 20th centuries, well, that is a, partially as a result of the East India Company carving out this empire in India, but also the sort of links between India and China and, and Britain. That's, that's a sort of an echo of the East India Company's role in, in Britain's maritime history and British history more, more broadly. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That was John McAleer of the National Maritime Museum. 
The gallery, Traders, the East India Company in Asia, opens on 28th September, and the book, Monsoon Traders, The Maritime World of the East India Company, by John McAleer, H.V. Bowen and Robert Blythe, is published now. Don't forget to have a look at our online East India Company gallery at historyextra.com slash traders. Now, earlier this year, I chaired the first debate at the inaugural Chalk Valley History Festival near Salisbury, where Professor Andrew Lambert of King's College London and TV presenter-turned-historian Peter Snow discussed the relative merits of Nelson and Wellington. Andrew Lambert's short lecture on Nelson was recorded, and I think it deserves a wider audience. So here it is. It's a great honour to be here and to inaugurate this event, and it's a particular pleasure for a man of Norfolk to come down to another part of the world uh, and to bring not just my hero, but also our nation's particular hero uh, to this event. Uh, There is nobody better to open a a festival of history in Britain uh, than Horatio Nelson. Nelson and Wellington have always been intertwined. They were the two men who represented Britain in this titanic conflict with the French Revolution and Empire, which began in the 1790s and ended finally in 1815. They also share some other interesting things. They did meet just once. They had a discussion on the eve of Trafalgar in Downing Street in the old War Office building. And Wellington, many years after, recorded how he found Nelson rather flighty and insubstantial, boasting about himself and somewhat vainglorious. And then Wellington says, Nelson went out of the room and he effectively found out who I was and then he came back and we had the most astonishing conversation about (laughs) strategy and politics and the art of war. I don't think I ever had a conversation that so interested me, uh, the Duke later recalled, after he'd been the conqueror of Napoleon and the Prime Minister and all of those other things. But Wellington's relationship with Nelson is important because when he died in 1852, his funeral service was exactly the same one that Nelson had had. Uh, He was lowered through the floor of St. Paul's into the crypt, exactly as Nelson had been, and for the next five years, his sarcophagus hung in chains above Nelson's tomb. Uh, He was then moved to his proper place uh, somewhere else in the pantheon of British heroes. The two men's careers intertwine and interlock because they represented a particular period in the history of this country. Nelson, as you know, born in Norfolk, the son of a humble country parson in Burnhamthorpe, a very small village even now. It's not one of the popular Burnhams in North Norfolk, if you know that part of the world. It's the one nobody goes to. It doesn't matter. Nelson was the nephew of a fine fighting seafarer, Morris Suckling, and it was Suckling who gave Nelson his start. At the age of 12, he took this rather puny little fellow with him to sea, and he taught him what it was to be a sailor, to be an officer, and to command. And when he wasn't at sea himself, he sent him on other voyages. Nelson went to the West Indies as a sailor. He then went to the north, to Spitsbergen, on an exploration vessel where he famously got tangled up with a polar bear. That, of course, is apocryphal, uh, but the spirit he showed in uh, apocryphally tangling with the polar bear would lead him on to many great things. Suckling is important because without that professional mentor, without that person to pick up this young man and mould him into something, it's unlikely Nelson would have reached the heights that he did. Suckling gave him the professional expertise, which was the platform from which his genius would finally unfold. In Morris Suckling, we're looking at a mid-18th century naval officer, a professional seafaring fighting man with an exemplary war record. In 1759, on the 21st of October, Suckling and HMS Dreadnought engaged two larger French ships and drove them off. 
And Nelson would carry Suckling's fighting sword on every one of his battles, bar one. The morning he forgot to buckle the sword on was his last. What Nelson learned from Suckling was the importance of being professional, of treating your men with the utmost respect, because without sailors, the Navy goes nowhere. A, a Navy is about people, it's not about ships. Without good people, you have no Navy. And he would then go to war against the Americans in the 1770s. He would fight the Americans and the French in that war. He nearly died of disease, wounds. He got himself into the patronage network of the best admiral of the day, very deliberately, Admiral Lord Hood. And he went back to war with the French in 1793 when the Revolutionary War broke out with Sir Samuel Hood's Mediterranean fleet. And it was while serving in the Mediterranean he realized that the war had changed. In the 18th century, war was fought for six months of the year and people went home. It was a, a gentle, rather limited business in which provinces changed hands and small things were decided. He realized that the French Revolutionary War was different. This was existential. It was us or them, and only one side could come out of this in one piece. When he saw Napoleon's armies on the, the Italian Riviera in the 1796-97, he realized that the art of war had changed. Naval battles were no longer going to be about winning. They were going to be about annihilation. And if you read Nelson's correspondence, that's one of his favorite words, to annihilate the enemy, not to win. Winning is nothing. The annihilation of the enemy gives us a result we need. And he changes the way we fight at sea, quite fundamentally. No longer is it about linear combat, exchanging blows, and tidying up the result at the end of the day. This is about finishing off the enemy completely. After a series of engagements in which he lost the sight of his right eye, his right arm, uh, and very nearly his life, he ended up commanding the fleet that was sent to the Mediterranean to stop Napoleon invading Egypt in 1798. And this is the first time the two great captains of war on land and sea come close together. N Nelson was within a few hours of intercepting Nel Napoleon's fleet as it sailed towards Egypt. But by being too eager to catch the enemy he thought was ahead of him, he missed. And he went all the way around the eastern Mediterranean and finally came back into Abakir Bay in August 1798, where he found the French fleet at anchor. And instead of thinking about what he would do tomorrow, just as the sun went down, he launched an attack. He sent his men to attack without giving them any formal instructions because he knew them, he trusted them, he'd briefed them. And over the next four hours, the business of fighting at sea would be transformed forever. At the height of the battle, the French flagship L'Orient blew up in a cataclysmic explosion which stunned and deafened everybody. Fighting stopped for 10 minutes. When, when the, the fires went out, the French fleet was completely destroyed. By the next morning, 11 out of 13 of the French battleships had been taken or destroyed. And Nelson didn't leave the Mediterranean until he'd taken the other two as well. The only score that mattered for Nelson was 13 nil. There were no other results he was interested in. But to show that he wasn't a man with one game plan, two years later he was sent to the Baltic to try and persuade the Danes not to fight against us. And on this occasion he fought the Danes until they were ready to accept they might have lost. And then he asked them very politely if they'd stop, uh, and they did. And the next morning he went ashore in Copenhagen and went to the works of the Royal Danish Porcelain Company and bought a dinner service. Because like most of us he had a shopping habit and it was usually porcelain. He ordered far more dinner services than he ever took delivery of. Most of them weren't finished until after he was dead. 
I'm not sure whether that was Emma or him, but one of them certainly had a problem with crockery. <laughs> the one thing that Nelson was really very poor at was peace. And the only time he spent ashore doing not very much was the peace of Amiens, the brief truce in the middle of the great period of 22 years of war. In that period, he bought himself a house in South London on the main road to Portsmouth, so he could get down to the fleet as soon as possible. When Napoleon resumes the war in 1803, he commands in the Mediterranean, and then he reaches the height of genius. Napoleon is planning to lure the British fleet away so he can invade Britain. This is the, the, the culminating moment of a conflict which Napoleon thinks he can win by guile, by superior military technique. Nelson penetrates his plans. He chases the French fleet out of the Mediterranean. He chases them back to Europe. And then when the fleet is needed to be sent to Cadiz to blockade the French and Spanish, Nelson is appointed. Here is a man who has served his king and country from the very beginning of the war and all the way through the previous war. He knows exactly what it is going to happen and he knows exactly what he wants to do. He encourages the enemy to leave harbor when they're far enough away from harbor to be brought to battle, he fights them in a decisive battle in which he throws away all of the rule books. There is no tactical signal that covers what Nelson does at Trafalgar. He does completely unexpected things. And Villeneuve, the French commander, says, you know what, we're going to lose because whatever we plan, Nelson will do something else. He will catch us by surprise. He will unpick our plans. And he led, as he always did, standing in the command space on the quarterdeck of the victory, because to lead a fleet into battle, you have to be where everybody can see you. And to make the job of his subordinates easy, he had to do the decisive part of the battle. Trafalgar is all about taking out the French command and control system. It's about nullifying the admiral. It's about turning the French fleet into a group of ships that don't know what they're meant to be doing. So he's takes his flagship and he leads this whole operation. He goes right under the stern of the French flagship and he destroys it as a fighting ship. He cuts down its masts, he kills key personnel. The French flagship stops functioning. The French admiral cannot signal, he cannot leave his ship, and nobody else knows what the game plan is. Nelson knows that one-on-one, -on -one, English ships will take French ships. It takes about an hour and a half to batter a French ship into submission. Naval battle isn't clever. It's about hitting the enemy so many times that there's nobody left on the ship to fight. Ships don't sink, they don't blow up, you just kill all the crew. And when not enough people are left standing, somebody hauls the flag down. And to speed that process up, you get as close as possible, as quick as possible. And that's what Nelson's tactics are all about. But the key to Nelson's genius isn't winning battles. Other men won battles. Nelson understands that the business of war is to win peace. So he doesn't fight battles, he fights to win campaigns, to stop the enemy doing what they want to do, to get inside the enemy's process of thinking, and to bring the war to a conclusion by making it impossible for the enemy to attack you again. Napoleon had given up the plan to invade England before Trafalgar, but Trafalgar meant he couldn't ever think of doing it again either. And Napoleon's army never again sat on the Channel Coast waiting for a chance to get across. Nelson had done his job. He died as he lived, wounded in the king's service. In all but one of his great battles, he was very badly wounded. On this occasion, he was mortally wounded. But he kept himself alive by sheer willpower until the result of the battle was known. He said that he had anticipated 
that of the 33 enemy ships, he would take 20. And when the score got to 18, he finally gave up. I've talked to doctors about this. There is no reason why Nelson should have been alive for the last three hours. Uh, the injuries he suffered should have killed him. But he, he kept himself alive. He finally drowned on his own blood. The bullet that killed him passed through his lung and severed the major artery, and his lungs filled with blood. He died when he had his body turned and the other lung filled up as well. He literally suffocated. So he went through excruciating agony at the very end. But why do we remember him? Because he died? Because he won a great battle? Because his girlfriend was Emma Hamilton? We remember him because when he came back to Britain in a barrel of spirits, he was given the most astonishing funeral that any private citizen had ever received. He was buried not like a dead man, but like a dead god. When the British looked at Nelson in 1806, they knew they had nothing else to defend them against the French. The Prime Minister was dying of cirrhosis. The King was intermittently insane. And at that stage, there were no British generals with any reputation whatsoever. Uh, one obviously might emerge in the future, but the only name that carried any charisma in the world was Nelson. So the British put him in St. Paul's at the center of a pantheon of heroes. If you go down to the crypt of St. Paul's, all the immortal, illustrious dead are down there, and they're all circled around one man. The two captains who died at Trafalgar are at his feet, and the army are off to that side, and there's some other chaps in the other corner. But the navy is there, right at the center, right under the crossing of this great national church. Why St. Paul's? Because the navy belongs to the city of London. It serves the city's interests. The first people to recognize Nelson were in the city of London. Burying Nelson like that meant that every time there was ever a problem, he could be got out and used. And eventually, in 1838, the Duke of Wellington signed off on the design of Nelson's column. He put his own money into building a monument to the greatest man who fought against Napoleon. Thank you. That was Andrew Lambert of King's College London. He's currently working on a book on the War of 1812, which is a subject he'll be exploring for the magazine next year. The Chalk Valley History Festival took place in July 2011 and will be returning again next year. That's it for this week. Next week we'll be discussing Field Marshal Haig and particularly his career following the First World War. You'll want to listen in for that. 